Welcome to On and Off the Pitch, an interview with assistant head coach for England, Bev Prisman. Bev, how are you? I'm really good, thank you. Thanks for having us on. Well, no, I'm, I'm glad you actually are here. This is a really special interview um, for me because obviously you are part of the England setup and uh, everyone wants to know what's happening with England, but also I want to hear about your journey as well. So, you know, before we get into it, I have to ask generally, uh, how have you been coping these past few weeks? Um, I've actually loved it, um, believe it or not. I'm, I mean, I'm dying to get on a football pitch again, but you know, my whole career has sort of been tournament after tournament and you're, you're always on the go. It's been nice to sort of stop, reflect, um, you know, obviously still working, but you, you're at home and you actually have a bit more routine. So lots of running, podcasts, learning, reflecting. So it's, it's been really nice, actually. Well, that's really good. So I'm glad to, I, have to, I have to ask this and, and, and it will get to a point where everyone's like, they don't even care anymore. But generally right now, we are in touch with everyone's mental health. So I'm glad you're enjoying it. You're probably one of the very few people who are enjoying being at home. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's, uh, it's been nice to be in one place for sure. That's good. Right. So today we're going to find out about your journey into football, uh, specifically, obviously, as, as, as a coach, an assistant coach. But... Can you remember, obviously you love the game, can you remember your first game of football? Oh, good question. No, I can't. I actually can't remember my first game of football. Well, whether I should be able to or not, I'm not sure. Um, no, but I do have memories about putting your first football strip on, getting your first pair of boots. Like those moments, I remember those more than probably my first ever football game because it was probably in the street with my friends putting jumpers down as, as goalposts and do you know what I mean? I think that was uh, growing up in, in England on the on a sort of council estate. That's what you do. You just sort of hang out with your mates and you kick a ball around, really. Well, do you know, I'm glad you can remember actually getting your first pair of boots. I don't remember getting my first pair of boots, so that's, that's something. But I mean, you know, it's a very difficult question saying, can you remember your first game? But you must have had a love of football from a very early age. So like, how old were you? Yeah, probably primary school, basically. So I think three or four, um, playing in the yard, the only girl who wants to kick a football around. Um, all of my memories are like tennis balls, not just footballs, very informal play um, early on. And then you go and play for your school team and you're the only girl on the team. Um, so, yeah, a lot of, lot of memories have been really competitive to, to show the boys that I could kick a ball, really. And did they, did they welcome you with open arms or was it a lot of ribbing? Do you know what? I don't ever recall being sort of rejected as, as one of them. I think I was treated like one of the lads type. Um, and, and yeah, that, that probably shaped who I am and what I'm about and what I've gone on in my career to probably do. Because I think, you know, you, you're there to prove people wrong. Girls don't play football. What do you mean you play football? Um, so I think, yeah, you, you're different, aren't you? You're the only girl on, out there kicking a ball around. So... And did you did you play for your school team at every age? Yeah, so all the way through primary school, secondary school, less less so secondary school is a little bit more sort of traditional that girls play netball and do trampolining and boys do football. And I remember my uh, PE teacher actually broke the rules for me um, and, and let me go and play with the boys during PE time. Um, so secondary school is a bit more traditional, but I still broke the mould and, and went and kicked the ball around with, with with the boys. Did, did the other girls say anything about it at the time? 
No, I think they knew, you know, they, they knew I loved it. And I hung out with the girls as well. I wasn't just sort of, but yeah, my, my passion definitely primary school was prominent. And then I would say outside of school hours, it was more, I was involved in a Brazilian soccer school that took place at my school every night. John Herdman, who will no doubt go on to talk about, was a big, big influential person in my career. He ran a soccer school and every night I was down there doing tricks and, you know, it was like samba football to music. And yeah, you know, they had a girls session once a week and the rest of the week was for boys. And I obviously went down, helped out, played in those sessions. That's brilliant stuff. So what, what type of player were you? Well, you can't see on this video, but I'm not the tallest, uh, the tallest player. I think you put me in a five-a-side or a futsal court and I'll, I'm half decent. You put me on a 11v11 pitch and probably uh, I struggle. I think, um, you know, I was a more of a midfielder, uh, no left foot, which catches me out all the time in rondos now. Um, but, you know, I wasn't, I was a good player for my area, but in the modern day, I wouldn't have, I couldn't have seen myself go on to represent England. Um, you know, very right-footed, had all the tricks in the book, but like I say, on 11 side pitch, I'm not sure that the, the, the game really suited me. But I was, you know, I, I held my own with the boys in, in my area and played county level with some of the players that now play for the Lionesses, which, which is quite cool. Really? Yeah, Jill Scott, Carly Telford, um, a, a couple of them were in my county team, so, so I knew them. Well, that, that's something. I didn't know that. So while you were playing at that young age, did you wear shin pads at all? I think I did. I think I wore them really uncool sort of ones that cover your ankles and all that sort. So I didn't in the street, obviously, but when it came to games, I, I did. Um, but yeah, football boots, shin pads, those sort of memories. I had a Man United sort of bedroom that was covered in curtains, duvet, and pictures on the wall. I was, I was hardcore. Um, the reason you mentioned ankles, does that mean anything for you? Oh, my nickname, yeah, my yeah. nickname. My uh, my head, uh, the head teacher of primary school used to call me Beverly Bite Your Ankles because I was, like I say, I was, honestly, I'm not the tallest now, but as a primary school, I used to have to get lifted up from my school dinners. I was that small. Um, so, yeah, my nickname was Beverly Bite Your Ankles. You know, he, again, we'll get on to this, but big influential person in my own like belief and development because he just, he, you know, he, he gave me a chance and I went on and played at primary school, captain the team and yeah. So, so what specific age were you kind of picked to, to kind of go into a kind of coaching stroke management role? Um, I think my, well, my career is sort of, as a head coach at international level, I'll, I'll say that, that was in 2013, so seven years ago, so letting on how old I am here, but um, probably 26, 25, 26, I was a, a head coach at a really competitive level. But before that, I'd obviously worked assistant levels, coach boys teams, coach, coach girls teams, you know, right the way through my career. But I would say got got serious coaching-wise at the age of probably 25, 26 internationally. Um, but I also held sort of leadership roles and development roles in football where I ran coach education, sort of national strategy in New Zealand. So, you know, 21 onwards, I've been in full-time football, which is quite lucky, really. That's really good. So, you, you know, you talk about playing football in your school days where you, you kind of, you're, you have the opportunity to still play with the boys. 
from leaving school to the age of 21, you, do, you, do you go into coaching at that point or are you still playing? Yeah, no. So I, um, I, I, I got into coaching when John Herdman took the sort of soccer school that I was involved with. I was there every night putting cones down, getting involved. And then eventually I went on to, um, I used to help him at Sunderland when he was coaching boys, Hartlepool. I'd go along, help him out. Again, very passionate about the game. But I went to John Moore's University and did a science football degree. Um, and then in that period, I got in touch with Mo Marley, who was running Everton Ladies at the time. And she was obviously a big role model in the women's game back then. Wasn't many of them, Bo Powell, Mo Marley, you know, in terms of coaching. And I went down to Everton and I remember I sent the email thinking, oh, you know, I'll just give it a give it a go, see if I can get in. I've got all these experiences. I've been out to New Zealand and coached in my uh, summer holidays there and just done some unique things. And essentially, after about six weeks, she got me involved. And then I was running the set, um, coaching in the Centre of Excellence, working with the first team with more then. And then I obviously graduated and went off to New Zealand and, and did what I did there basically so I would say I really got heavily into coaching at the age of sort of 16 to 18 and then took off from there really did my B license at the age of I think I was 18 19. At 16 to 18 is a really key age range for some people because yeah. it's when they're still questioning themselves as to what they're going to do and where they're yeah. going to be you, you, you were very unique at that age? Yeah, do you know what? Actually, I reflected on this recently. So primary school, I had a really good primary school. I would say that set me up for life. I've got a little boy now and I think primary school for me, key. Secondary school, I did well, but you know, I, I love the things I love, PE, etc. Then I went to do a BTEC at college, um, 16 to 18. And I went from being probably an average student at school to I ended up getting student of the year, which you know, in my, nobody would have sort of said I was a, that type of student at secondary school, but because I was doing something I was passionate about, it was in coaching, I threw myself into it. And I think what I learned from that is if you're doing something you love, you're passionate about, I excelled because I, I was really passionate. Um, so at that age group, I did something I loved. I took up something I loved and made a career out of it. Um, and it brought out the best of me. So that's something that's probably been there from uh, your early childhood then? Yeah, football. To be honest, I've got a football degree. I don't actually know what I would have done without being in football, other than I always had a passion for teaching. And some of that was because I had some great primary school teachers. And so, I guess coaching is teaching. But no, I, you know what? You took the question away from me, really. Co coaching for me is teaching. It's just in a different platform. It's a different classroom environment. You know, the cones... They're the equipment that you need to use. So from a very early age, you had a very good primary education where the teacher or teachers identified what you were good at and allowed you to develop in that area. So in terms of your coaching skills, it was more or less they were honing those skills for you from a very early age. It's almost as if you didn't choose coaching. It was yeah. chosen for you. No, absolutely. And, you know, my mum and dad gave me everything in terms of, football they backed me that you know I'd, again boots strips and, and we didn't come from a wealthy background but I never felt like I went without and they were the ones at probably 16 they paid for me to go to New Zealand for two three months in my summer holidays so they had a massive part to play and again now I'm a parent you sort of look at those things and you think those are the things that shape you so you, your parents pay for you to go to New Zealand at 16 
yeah. Right. And, and you say you're a parent now, right? Mm -hmm. Would you do the same for your child? Well, if I knew that my child was going, so, so obviously John Herdman, who's from my hometown, he coached me. So I wasn't like just going to the other side of the world without knowing anybody. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think that's what set me up. Um, yeah, it had, it had a massive impact and, and it's got me to where I am now. Well, it is a bold move for parents to do and say, we're going to send our child we love to the other side well, of actually, the planet. I think I knocked on their door and said, I want to go and play and coach in New Zealand in my summer holidays. Um, and they made it happen, which was great. That's, you're very, very fortunate. So when you go to New Zealand, describe what that was like. Well, it was the other side of the world to start with, and I did hate flying, so that was probably the first barrier. But I, I went there, um, and it was great. You've you got to meet new people. You've got to get out of your comfort zone. Culture's very, very different from my hometown, that was for sure. Um, and I just threw myself into playing and coaching every day. It was like working full-time in football. I just wasn't necessarily working per se. But again, I look now and I go, a degree helped me on my way, but actually my experiences and accumulated experiences in different environments has set me up to be able to deal with pressure, adversity, all the things that come your way in a job. I would actually, if I was employing someone tomorrow, I think the experiences and the being brave and doing things a little bit differently has a role to play. So you've pushed, you've pushed the doors open, would you say, for other players or coaches in your that are coming up through the game to say this is a route that you can take and you don't need to wait yeah I think there's different doors I said this I was I was actually speaking uh, yesterday or the day before and there's many different doors to go and do what you want to do in your life in passion in, in jobs and I, I think what you know is there's some traditional doors that are there that you can try and go through and then there's some other doors that if that door's not open you've got to go and knock on it and I think I've worked really hard to get to where I am and I've had to go through different paths to do it. Um, and by no means I'm not done yet, but I think, yeah, I think having different avenues and doing things, believing in yourself and being confident and, and brave to make some bold decisions. I think, you know, that sort of stuff pays off. Yeah. Did, did at any point, did you ever doubt yourself while you were in New Zealand? Um, so I moved over there full time at the age of 21 in a male sort of dominated, my, my role was running coach education courses and you're putting on sessions and, and being around some high profile people. And I actually think my confidence um, at that time, I just didn't know any different. I'd, all I'd known all my career is that it's, okay, it's normal to be the only female on coaching courses. It's normal to be the only female in, in what I do. So a lot of people I've spoke to like, how, how did you, you know, that's a big barrier. I think it's all I'd ever known. I think now, a child growing up now, if they were putting that, it might be very different. Um, so I think confidence, a bit of advice I'd give to anyone is, especially I think female coaches, is that managing your confidence is really important um, because it can be knocked, it can be tested, it can be challenged. And I think knowing what gives you confidence and what takes away from you is really important um, and how you manage that. But no, I think I've confidence has always been sort of there, but it's because of my competitive nature of I'm going to prove you wrong. <laughs> I bet you've proved quite a few people wrong as well, haven't you? Yeah, along the way, I think I have had to. And again, it's probably earlier in my career I've had to do that, where at one point I was sort of the technical director of New Zealand um, at the age of, I'm probably at that age of maybe 24, 25. Um, and I had sort of 60 staff working for me at that time. And, and you've got people 
who played professional in England, who were in jobs, who were reporting into me. That was a really challenging time. And actually, I was given the interim role before I was given the the job. And I would go, if, if I was a 35-year-old guy, you'd, would I have been given the interim or would I have just been given the job? Um, so that interim period, my mindset was, I'm going to prove that I can do this. Um, I may, maybe I was the obvious choice, but I think it was more, you know, 25, 26-year-old. Can she lead a country on, on a national strategy and, you know, make some big decisions? And that was a really challenging time. But again, I think that shaped me and my experiences before it had shaped me. You know, you say you, you asked that question about where, would they have, if you were a 35-year-old man, would they have offered you the interim role? Who did you share that thought with at the time? Did you keep it to yourself or did you seek counsel? I, I actually have only recently reflected on it. Um, that's what I'm saying in this lockdown year, sort of, you get a chance. To, I, I didn't think it at the time. I just sort of, right, I'm going to prove that I'm the best person for the job. Um, and yeah, I guess I, I got appointed into the role full time, which, which was great experience. Well, that, that you, you know something, some people kind of question things, but they have to speak to someone outside of their immediate world. Mm -hmm. They have a coach, they have a mentor, whatever you call it, for guidance. You know, at, at that moment, I asked the question, who did you speak to? And you just carried on. Mm. That, but I probably didn't think it at the time. I probably actually, maybe deep down in your gut, but it, it, wasn't, it wasn't there at the forefront of my thinking. It was just, I'm going to earn this job and I'm going to do the best I can do with it. Um, at the time, football coach, manager of huge or a huge organisation with so many people uh, um, reporting into you, yeah. it must have been daunting. Even with confidence that you have, you quite clearly show and display, you must have had moments where you thought, "God, blimey, this is big. What am I doing here?" Yeah, yeah, no, I definitely did. I definitely did. And I think, you know what, in that period, what I've learned, and I use it a lot now, is actually when you're a leader, whether it be a coach, whether it be in, in that particular role, having people get on the bus with you is really important. So the, the relationships, I think a lot of leaders think that they have to have all the power and they make all the decisions. And actually now the modern leader and the best leaders bring people with them and use the wisdom of the crowd and sort of yeah i think i'm a people person and have good sort of emotional intelligence to read people and i think that's one of my super strengths that i think um you know is really really important to take a team with you to a group of staff whatever it might be that's really important and actually in the coaching world it gets underestimated we all just get obsessed with tactics and if i move on to sort of from being in new zealand going into canada for five six years that was massive for me on the pitch growth and got my hands on a lot of things, went to a lot of major tournaments as a head coach, as an assistant coach. And, and you reflect on where, where were my highs, where were my lows, probably the more I learned about football and coaching at the real sort of peak and I was at the edge of it where you had to be on the top of your game. When I was so obsessed with the X's and O's, sometimes you forget about the, the people part. That was probably my biggest learning. Um, that, that I take forward with me now is that the people part is actually my strength. The tactics, I've, you know, I would say I, that's what I've brought to England. I see the game a certain way, but I won't ever just view the game that way. That's really interesting. Um, you know, it's not many people that actually talk about leadership in terms of the importance of people. Um, you, you are very much in terms of the pyramid. You're at the bottom. Mm. You see yourself helping others who then help you. Yeah. Am I right? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I do think that. I think um, like it's you've got to create an environment where people feel part of something bigger. That's um, I think that's that's crucial. Staff, players, um, I think that's massive. So you're a football coach, you're a brain coach, and you're a, a, a people's leader. What else? Okay. What 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 else do you have up your sleeve in terms of tricks? Um, I'm not I'm not too sure really. I think um, do you know what? I just love working with people. That's probably the downside of being locked in your house for however many weeks it's been now, eleven weeks, and it's the bit I love about being an international coach. I love it and I hate it. Love being on camp for an intense period where you're around people, but then you got the the when you're not with people. Whereas if you're a day to day coach, you sort of it, you get it every day. The, the people part is what I love. You create moments, memories um, through football. But I think I'm a real people person and I enjoy being around people, understanding people, getting to, to know people's ideas. Yeah, that's good. You, you mentioned in terms of being a people person and you, you, the, the tournaments. Whilst in Canada, you, you experienced quite a, a number of tournaments yourselves. Um, what were your highs? for you there and what were the, the moments that that stay with you or have stayed with you that you're kind of thinking maybe I could have changed something there yeah that's a really good question so my some my best moments were my first under 17 world cup in Costa Rica um, I'd basically been employed 2013 tight turnaround you know got, got a group of players together and I went on and I would say performance wise and um, results wise like that group, we, we played some unbelievable football in, in my um, my opinion. And some of those players have gone on to be like really core players in the first team. So massive, I, I absolutely love that. And actually, it's quite hard to try and replicate that because it's your first, first World Cup. Um, some unbelievable players, great experience, great memories. Some adversity like red card in the knockout um, stages to, to go on to the quarterfinals um, so you know you've got some some massive moments that happened in, in that tournament but I massively enjoyed that and I look back probably I had my under 17s World Cup I then had another under 17 World Cup I took under 20s under 15s was with the senior team my other big moment was the Rio Olympics with, with the bronze medal with the senior team which was probably the back end of so the front end the back end and everything in the middle was probably massive learnings along the way um, of tournaments. And like I say, I think the bit in the middle, what I did very quickly is I learned more and more about the game. And in the end, I think more in the youth, I think I coached a youth team more like I'd coach a senior team. And my reflection was, is that first World Cup I went to, the freedom, the, you know, I wasn't as sort of tactical I think if I was to take a youth team tomorrow, I would, my reflection is I wouldn't be as tactical as what I was in the latter part of my time in Canada with the youth teams. I think, you know, it was great. They learned a lot, but in terms of freedom, creativity, that side of things, if I was coaching a youth team tomorrow, I'd, I'd approach it more like that. I think what I did was would have been really successful with a, with a senior team at that, you know, later in my career. So the more you know, Sometimes it's great, but um, I think that the art is is putting the right thing to, into a player at the right time. Um, but it wasn't all bad because I think it's team versus individual. My core role was to produce more players for the senior team. 
and we did we did that. We I think it was eleven players in four years went into the first team more than it's ever been. So you know I, I picked young players ahead of their time to, and, and put the individual progression ahead of the team progression. But you know selfishly I would have liked to have you know gone on to a final with with Kandra at a Youth World Cup as a head coach. Do you know, I'm thinking back to where we started at the beginning in terms of your primary school and how important that was. Your time with the under-17s, you have a very clear understanding of what young players need in terms of coaching. Yeah. You have, you have um, what we call in the world of education um, an early years approach. You learn through play because you talked about creativity and the tactics would be too, it's almost restricting. Would, would you use that same coaching style across the board in terms of being more free, in terms of being creative with yeah. players beyond 21, 22? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's the balance, right? I think international coaching is very unique. You'll, you'll have a game at a World Cup, you have three days turnaround, three or four, and then you play your next game. I think tournament settings very different. Match day minus one or whatever, you have to get some information into them quickly for the next opponent. But I think um, when you're outside of a tournament setting, I think ultimately players step across the white line. They have to make that decision. And I think the higher the talent you work with, the better players you work with, the more freedom they need, in my opinion. The, the sort of the least talented players, I think they have to have really good structure to help foster their talents or at least, you know, you, you're making a hole to put a round peg in, not a square hole, if that makes sense. So, yeah, yeah I think... I definitely think the higher the level, the more freedom that player needs. And all your job as a coach is, is to put some understanding and, and um, some boundary pegs around it that they operate within, um, for sure. That's, you know, that's, it's very interesting hearing this. And I'm thinking about just the tournaments that I've watched and the games that I've watched and the criticism some players get from fans, etc. You never really understand what it's like for the coach once the players cross the line, you know, <laughs> we, have to, we have to relinquish all sort of control that we think we've got, but it is, I mean, you, you do everything you can on a game day. You're almost useless because it is what it is when they cross that line. It's only half time really that you get to massively impact players. It's no, it's, it's, it's good insight, but you, you know, as football fans, we forget. You know, we honestly do forget that, you know, as a coach or a manager or assistant coach, you are like the parent and you talk to your child before they go to school and say, have a great day. They cross the line. Mm. Then it's, they're in the classroom and it's beyond your control and you have to stand back and watch them take kind of control of their own environment. And it must be very, very difficult. You know, when I think about your coaching throughout the time, New Zealand, Canada, um, who do you go to or where do you go to to kind of get your inspiration for your, your approach to coaching? It's not just based on your own kind of primary school education. Do you take advice or tips from anywhere else? Yeah, I think, listen, I've always said this to any sort of coach who was who listening to this. There's, there's, don't underestimate how much of an impact you can have on someone. So I think three key people in my coaching career and there's a lot of people outside of it who aren't necessarily coaches, but um, John Herdman, you know, only left him two and a half years ago from Canada and um, followed him all the way through his career. 
he was my first sort of real coach that inspired me about coaching. Mo Marley gave me my shot at Everton. Um, and then now Phil. So I've had three very different sort of coaches that I've worked with where I've seen different things. But I've also, very early in my career, age 21 plus, I read a lot of books, a lot of leadership, culture. Now when I'm in lockdown, I'm listening to a lot of podcasts. So I get my ideas from probably a lot of different sources, a lot of experience where you try things and you think, you know what, that was absolutely like, I love that, that worked. This didn't work. And I think, you know, the, the, the higher you go in your career, you get less sort of trial time where you can play around with things and start to form your own identity. You know, I've come from John, who's very different to Phil. They're both sort of different ends of the spectrum. I think I've had the opportunity, and I view it that way, to see two different ways of doing things. And probably where I want to be and more what I'm like is probably somewhere in the middle. Um, so I think having a mass, people can have a massive impact on you. And a lot of my ideas or the way I view the world has come from, from key people in my coaching career. Which books have you read in terms of leadership that kind of stayed with you or you, you can talk about freely? Um, let me think about this. Um, I love, there's a book called The Energy Bus. Don't know if you've, it's really, I, I, it's really light. I don't know that, but I must, I must find it. <laughs> Yeah, so the energy bus is about people who, um, they talk about energy givers, energy vampires, people who take away energy. Um, yeah, it's a really good life book. I've had my staff when I was a head coach read that in terms of bringing energy to a tournament setting. Um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I, I know that book. Did you finish it? It's heavy. But <laughs> do you know what? In terms of like being responsible and how you respond to things, enjoyed that good to great um clarity i don't know if you've not familiar that. with that one right that's more about like how you articulate your message simplicity it's another book the one thing like that yeah i've got a, a big long list i actually made a list to recommend to someone the other day um but now because i'm life's got busier with a child podcasts i find actually i can do i can listen to them when i'm doing it anything <coughs> so yeah that's um that's sort of some a, a bit of an insight yeah so you've been listening to your podcast while you've been out on your your runs out on my runs bike rides doing the gardening whatever it might be um i use the you don't get many moments i think when you're doing two full-time jobs um and a little one in lockdown you, you don't get many moments but that's where you've got to be creative I'm sure you are. I've, I've written down the energy bus. I, I like the phrase um, energy vampire. I think yes. I've met a few. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you can spot them a mile off. And what I've now learned is that I can only spend so much time with, you know, some, sometimes energy vampires, I mean, I don't know what situations they are good, but yeah, I've learned those sorts of people. I'll choose my time wisely. That's you are good. what you surround yourself with. That's what they say, isn't it? Birds of a feather, as they say. Yeah. Indeed, yeah. indeed. So you've had great memories and leadership knowledge from Canada, England come calling. Yeah. How did that feel? Do you know what? That was, uh, that was unique, really, because, um, yeah, I, I didn't look for it. It's sort of, um, I got a call around um, the role, and it was in a change in period. So I'd spent, um, I think it was eight years, seven years in Canada, and it'd been really intense. In the end, I was 
under 17, under 20, assistant coach of the senior team. So you can imagine major tour after major tournament, you're almost burnt out. That's how I felt. Um, and what I see in this role was, listen, it was a risk in terms of not being a head coach. You're just coming into being an, an assistant. But actually, you know, I just get to do one thing and hopefully do it well. Um, so, yeah, to, to be involved with my national team, someone had asked me that at 21 when I left the country. You know, you're working with England in a major time in women's football. I probably would have laughed at them. So, in that respect, I think I was like, oh, this is going to be fantastic. And, you know, made the move and moved back to England where I hadn't lived since the age of 21. So, yeah, it's been, it's been an absolute pleasure and whirlwind so far. Um, had some unbelievable moments um, along the way and worked with a great group of players and staff. Did you have to interview or were you headhunted? Yeah, no, I, had, I definitely had to interview. Um, but, you know, it was sort of, they approached me to apply for the job. Um, so, yeah, I had to go through an interview. And I remember my first sort of informal moment was Sue Campbell, Phil, on a call. And, you know, when you get off a call and you just think, I really connected with those people. I can see where they're going. You know, it was a big, big risk for me in the sense of I was in a permanent role. I'd, I'd earned my stripes. I was well regarded in Canada. Um, so it was a risk in some ways, but I got off the call and I thought, like, I really enjoyed that chat. And then obviously all the other interview processes followed. It's good. Um, do you know, what, what, uh, working for your, um, in terms of your job with regards to football and to working as, as in the England setup must be an amazing feeling for anyone. Uh, but to get the call to come over and to, to be interviewed for it, more so. Um, you have so much knowledge with regards to the game. Um, what, was, what were your aims and ambitions when you actually took the role on? Well, I think you look at it at that time, the coronavirus has probably shifted the tournaments, but three years in a row you have um, World Cup, Olympic Games, home Euros. So you look at that and you go, that's massive. Like imagine the momentum and it's a tipping point. And I think I knew that the women's game in England was, was moving at a rapid pace. You only have to look at last season, um, you know, going to the Etihad where you had Man United, Man City. Um, there's been some amazing attendances even in the domestic league. So I think I just knew that the women's game in this country was taking off. Um, and I wanted to be part of it and I wanted to, to try and win something. Mm. And, you know, in terms of your, your own ambitions, in terms of management, you've been an assistant coach, yeah. assistant head coach. You've headed up youth programs in Canada and New Zealand. You know, do you want to move beyond the assistant and say, you know, I want to be the main person here. I want to be the number one. Um, you know, do you have thoughts of that at any point in the future? Yeah, definitely. I think um, in Canada, although, you know, it was a, a youth national team head coach roles, um, because it's such a women's football country, you know, that's the main, main sport. There's a lot of pressure and scrutiny. And I think I, I love that. And I think you get the best out of me when there is that. You find levels that probably you didn't know you had. So I think in the future, I want that pressure and scrutiny of, of being a leader. I think I've got leadership attributes that I've had to use throughout my career. Um, so definitely, I think in the future, I, I want to be a number one again. And I made that clear when I applied for the role as, you know, I, this has been a massive experience as an assistant role um, and, and still will be. But I think in the future, I definitely see that scrutiny and pressure, expectation, build something um, is, is where I want to be. 
And you know, you're, I'm gonna say this, you're, you're young. You're very young to be, in terms of the experience that you've, there are people that live three or four times their life yeah. may not have had the experiences that you've had, you know, working in New Zealand, Canada, now with um, the FA for England. It's a lot of experience, you know, and uh, at some point, do you see yourself like mentoring other managers, you know, whether it's international managers or club managers, do you see yourself doing that in the future or do you do it now? No, I think um, I've actually, a lot of people, my career is reversed. So a lot of people will get on the grass, accumulate all the hours and experiences and tournaments that, that I've now got early in their career. And they'll end being in a role that I ended up doing at probably 25, 26, where I'm developing curriculum, coach education, leadership. So in many ways, I've almost approached it and I've got a sort of a route that's like that. But I think definitely later in my career, but right now my passion is, is on the grass, being the best version I can be. Um, but I definitely think in the future, I've got experiences in that and I really enjoy it. I find it really rewarding to try and get the best out of someone and help them and support them. Um, but but not, not too soon. Not too, not too soon. Okay. No. Well, let me ask you this question. Uh, have you ever looked at doing, being a club manager? Would that interest you? hundred percent. I mean, I, I um, in my mind, the, the, the leadership pressure scrutiny, whether it's international or club, hundred um, percent. I think ultimately I want to be on the grass, um, you know, coaching football. But does it, does it matter where it is? Does no, it have to I be here? I don't think it does. I think, um, no, absolutely not. I don't think it does at all. I think, Again, it's very different. I think, you know, the frustration of international coaching is, let's say you lose a game the last day of camp, you've got to wait another month, two months, three months before you get to impact what that looks like. Um, but the benefit of international coaching is, obviously, my accumulated experiences of tournaments is really significant. You get to plan well, and if you're really well planned, it's an X factor going into a major tournament. But... but Club football is day to day. You get the, you lose a game on Sunday, you get to make a difference on Monday, Tuesday, and and, and impact for the following week. So there's pros and cons to both, and I've definitely never ruled either out. Um, yeah. as part of my journey. You know, in mentioning that, in terms of the, the difference between club football and, and national football, the time span between results and how you can impact what you do on the pitch with the the players. Um, do you reflect, go back and look at your training regime or the, or the skills that you've asked the players to, to carry out and say, mm, I might need to change that aspect of it? Or how do you go about, you know, being, being a reflective learner? Yeah, it's a good question. I think the best camps we've had, or sorry, what I'll, I'll change that. Camps where there's been something not right, it generally, I think, in the international scene, you imagine you've got, so many clubs turning up and putting on the same shirt. That's essentially what international coaching is. They've all come from different philosophies. They might have won at the weekend, lost at the weekend. I actually think a lot of international coaching is about the culture, about putting those, let's say, eight different clubs all facing the right way. Now, you put, now you're in England camp. This is what we're about. I think a lot of international coaching, when we haven't had things gel in a camp or a, let's say fixtures in a camp, often our reflections have been on 
maybe was it was the schedule too heavy um culturally did we get this right i think actually on reflection a lot of our training and things i think that that has been part of our x factor really i think we any any player that turns up to our environment you know we get that feedback the tempo the intensity it, it's massive and i think um putting all the best players in the country together in one setting you naturally get that but i do think international coaching is actually about aligning a vision um culture getting everyone facing the same way instead of man city arsenal chelsea you, you know, I think that's a, that's the nature of the men's game is the same nationally. I think that's a challenge. And, and, and that's where your people skills come into its form, where you are at your best, because you know that you, you want everyone to get on the bus yeah. and work with you on one particular goal or agenda. And, you know, how, how difficult or easy is that as, as a coach? Yeah, I think you've got to get the sort of processes and rituals around culture, right? So, for example, we have a captain's group. So we have four or five players who every camp, you know, Phil leaves me with, with our sort of team psychologist and we have captain's meetings throughout the camp. We have captain's before, uh, captain's meetings before, after. And it's a way of sort of, it's a two-way process where we'll say, listen, girls, I think, I think we need to shape the team a bit more like this or they'll say mm, training was really heavy today we might need so it's a two-way dialogue and, and it's owned by them like we said when they step over that line they're the, the ones that have to perform so our job is to help them do that and that doesn't mean to say we listen to everything because we have expertise that you know we know what's right what they want and what they need sometimes might be two different things but it's a two-way process and I think that's the key is you've got to be open to that dialogue backwards and forwards, feedback sometimes backwards and forwards. It's not always nice and to hear it, but I think it's really important. It's, just, it's, it's been very honest there. You say it's not always nice. No one likes feedback. No. No one likes feedback. No one, I don't know anyone who says, yeah, we like to do feedback. No one likes it. So, yeah. you know, when you're at the, the, at the forefront of, of a football team or an organisation as, as you are, um, when you're saying something which might upset someone else's is mood, it's very, very difficult. And obviously, I suppose the, the books that you've been reading in terms of clarity, you have to get your message across the yeah. right way. And I think sometimes you have to depersonalise it. I think I've always got that sort of mindset that like someone's intentions are always good. We know that. I don't think there's many people out there who actually are trying to be a certain way their intentions, or let's say I delivered something, my intention was to deliver at a world-class level. Whether I did that or not, and whether the feedback is that I didn't do that, I, I, I think it's been able to depersonalize it, put your ego to the side, because we all have one in football, we're all competitors and we have egos. I think to get better, that's the only way. You know, you, 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 I like it, you say depersonalize it. it. It makes total sense, but like I say, it's not always, it's not always um, received in the right way, but I can yeah. understand it's very, very difficult. Um, you're a lover of, of football, as you said. You said when you were a child, you had the, the Manchester United uh, curtains, duvet yeah. set, pillowcase. Yeah. Uh, who was your favourite player back then? Giggsy. Giggsy and Beckham. Giggsy and it Beckham. Wasn't, it wasn't Phil Neville, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. does, he, does he know this? Oh, he knows it. I think he knows it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think they did a Phil Neville duvet set, did they? 
No, they didn't, no. Oh, well, no. never mind. Um, yeah. In terms of, like, club football, do, I mean, do you follow it now, generally? I do, but I would say I'm more of a football fan now. Yeah. You know, I'm not obsessed with the team. I, I just enjoy watching different teams play and what you see. And I think um, some of it on a Sunday, obviously, we're out watching the women's game around the country. So I probably don't watch as much as I would like to. And I just wish in lockdown there was some football to watch. If actually that, that would be a dream, hopefully there will be. Um, but yeah, I think I more watch it now with a coaching eye, unfortunately. And sometimes I actually just don't want to watch it because... I've just come off a camp and I just want to relax. That's like someone says, you know, I just cooked dinner, but I'm not eating it today. I'll eat tomorrow. Because yeah. you spent all your time in the kitchen. Football coaches, coaching people day in, day out. The last thing they want to do is go home and watch football. Mm. Yeah. You know, you know, what, you I mean, that's, yeah, that's what, life, I guess. What do you watch then? Because this, again, lockdown, what do you watch? What do I watch? A lot of Netflix series at the minute. To be honest, I never, ever watch a lot of Netflix series other than in lockdown. I've managed to, and it's only on an evening. It's not like my days are filled with nothing. Some people are enjoying this period where they get to, to do nothing all day. Um, but, you know, working from home with a little one, it gets to seven o'clock at night and you're like, you know, but I, I like reality TV. I hate to admit that. But oh, no, come on, Bev, come on. You know what it is? I think my brain just likes to just nothing. Bev, come on. Reality TV. <laughs> yeah, I love that. No. Love reality TV. No, 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 no. I was Geordie expecting Shaw something. Sorry? Geordie Shaw. Oh, no, no, come on. Not you... now, but it was in a TD Love Island, like that sort of. You, you, you delivered such high quality conversation and then you just, you just came down. Yeah. What's well, happened? What's you, happened? You, can't be, you can't be up all the time. Sometimes you've got to, you know, decompress. Okay. Decompress indeed, you know. So you've been watching lots of that during the lockdown. Well, and... No, I haven't actually. Okay. But, but you know, when those series are on, that's yeah. generally what I'm into. Yeah, you know, I've asked that question. I've asked questions um, to other people I've interviewed in terms of what they've watched, TV and film. Obviously, everyone's watching Netflix. I'm going to ask a similar question to you. Uh, if there were a TV program or film that you could be in, oh, which one would it be, and which character would you play? Hmm. Interesting. I don't actually know. That tells you how much I watch. Harry's Heroes? Maybe Harry Redknapp? Really? <laughs> try, try and get some, uh, some old, old pros together to lose weight and play football and beat Germany, I guess. Maybe that. There's a, there's a personal trainer deep inside you, isn't there, that just dying to get out. Maybe. Just maybe, maybe, maybe. maybe. You know, I've really enjoyed talking to you and finding out about your journey. And uh, in terms of your aspirations, we know um, that you want to go on. You've mentioned it in terms of managing, being first choice, being the main person, um, whether it's club, international. Um, I really do hope that's going to happen for you very, very, very soon. Thank you very much. Well, I've enjoyed it. What are you going to do now? Um, Work. I've got a few work meetings now to, to do. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much, uh, Bev, for speaking to me. Um, I'm going to thank everyone for watching. This was On and Off the Pitch, an interview with Bev Priestman. And I'm going to say thank you and I'll see you soon. Bye for now. Thank you.